Today we come to the awesome conclusion of this tremendous letter written to the Hebrews that we've spent the last half a year studying. It might have felt a bit like a marathon as we've gone through these many months, but we're finishing today. And and marathon's appropriate because that's exactly how he describes the Christian life, as we've seen several times now. It's a race that we're on and not a short race. It's not a little sprint. It's a long marathon. When you become a Christian, you're jumping out of the starting blocks on this long journey, this marathon race that will result in great glory once we get to the end with our Lord and Saviour. And like a physical marathon, there's going to be times when you're feeling great, when you're just in the zone, when you feel like it's a doddle and everything's going well, you're at peace with God, there's joy and your friends around, but there's also times when the going is going to be really, really tough. There's uh, times when it's going to be soul sapping even and, and just taking one step in front of the other seems like almost an impossibility and, and everything seems set against you and God seems so far away and, uh, and the other paths to the side seem so much more inviting and easy uh, and, and maybe you feel like that in this time of lockdown that we've had these last few months. Has there been one of these times for you where it's just been exhausting and soul-sapping and where's God? And uh, especially with no one else spurring you on in the race side by side, fellow believers. Well, the Hebrew Christians that this letter was written to, they were in a time just like that. The pressure was on them. The, the opposition was fierce, the obstacles enormous, the temptation great to give up, give up on Jesus. Uh, members of the church had been arrested, family and friends had disowned them, some had lost their livelihoods, they'd had their homes and possessions confiscated by the authorities and so they were starting to drift, drift away from Jesus, just like a tennis ball washing out from the, you know, at the beach when the wave has grabbed it all, like the surfer caught in a rip being dragged away, drifting right back in their case into the Judaism from which they had come. They're in the verge of packing in their faith in Jesus altogether and going back to the religion they'd grown up with, which was much more socially acceptable. I mean, there were synagogues in every city uh, across the known world. It was much more entrenched in society. It meant the family and friends would once again embrace them. And and it was so much more impressive than Christianity with with its temples and its priests and everything visible, tangible. And and what's more, I mean, this is not just any old made-up religion. This is a religion that was given by God himself. So why wouldn't you want to... Go back to that then. Give in and make life so much easier. Well, we learned from verses 15 and 16 in chapter 12 last week as Dave spoke to us, what exactly they were going through, how they felt, what it was like. They were prematurely exhausted. They were grievously poisoned and they were impulsively short-sighted. They were prematurely exhausted like like a marathon runner at the Tokyo Olympics recently. It was so hot and humid, people were collapsing on the side. And, you know, like a marathon runner sat down and halfway through the race, just panting for breath and begging for water and thinking, I'm not going to finish. Uh, they were grievously poisoned, we heard. They'd, they'd allowed the root of bitterness 
to grow up amongst them. And, and David took us back to Deuteronomy 29 to show us not just not that they were feeling bitter about life, but it meant that there were, there were members of the group who were living with undealt sin in their lives and they hadn't dealt with it as a group. And so there was a sepsis that they were refusing to cut out. And so they were being poisoned as a church and they were impulsively short-sighted. They were impetuously grabbing for lots of shiny things like toddlers, much like Esau, we were told, wanting immediate gratification rather than hanging on for the glory and blessings of God. Toys and joys, thrills and spills, pleasures and playthings now rather than glory then. Prematurely exhausted, grievously poisoned, impulsively short-sighted. And he'd urge them to, to put all of that aside and to, to fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, to, to throw off all the things that are encumbering him, the excess baggage that was weighing down, be it the sins or the good things in life that were just holding them back from serving Jesus, and, and to run, run this race, run with perseverance, the race that was marked out and cheered on by the great crowd of witnesses that we'd heard about, the other heroes of faith, but looking to Jesus at the end. Well, today as we come to the closing section of the letter and we we see the whole thing out, we're given a kind of sketch of the kind of church that endures to the end of the marathon of the Christian race. And really is just a sketch. It's a rough outline, much like an artist might sketch out a draft before they go and do the actual painting. You know, they, they, they sketch out what they want the final artwork to resemble. They're mapping out the shape and the design, but not necessarily giving every detail and not giving all the colour and shade. See, here is a sketch of a church that endures to the end of the marathon of the Christian race. And it struck me just how great a thing that is for us as we look forward to meeting again in person, as we start to come out of this lockdown in the next couple of months, hopefully, uh, as, and as we plan for the next 10 years and, and look to what's ahead and, and you know, what we might do together to serve Jesus. You know, it's a great thing for us right at this moment to think, what kind of church should St Barnabas be if it is to be a true church that does not shrink back but makes it to the finish? What does it look like for us together to hold fast to the confession of our hope as we've been urged and to not drift away? What does it look like to be healthy and vibrant runners on this race together? Well, in this final section, we're given two vital marks. They're the key aspects of the sketch, two vital marks that just such a church And then we're given this final assurance at the end to keep us going. What are the two marks? Well, mark one, attentive listening. Mark number two, acceptable worship. And you see both of those at the very end of chapter 12, and then there's an explanation in chapter 13. So mark number one in verse 25 of chapter 12, he says, see to it that you do not reject him who speaks. Listen attentively. Verse Mark 2, verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. 
so that by it we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God, uh, for our God is a consuming fire. Worship acceptably. And, And the whole reason for those two marks, the driving motivation and the impetus that's really going to help us understand why those two distinctives, those two features are the marks, is an incredibly vivid contrast that's given just before that in verses 18 to 24. We looked at it very briefly last week, but I thought it would be worth going over again because you see there in verse 18, there's a stark contrast painted between the people of Moses' day and us today. He says, you have not come, but instead you have come. That's the contrast. And it's a comparison that the author's picked very carefully because he wants to remind us of the fear that was actually there in the Old Covenant, but also the glory of the new. I mean, they're tempted to go back to the old ways. Well, we know what it's actually like. And so his point is that things have changed dramatically with the death of Jesus. Everything's radically different now because of Jesus' blood shed on the cross. He said, we're not like the Israelites as they came out of Egypt to God's first assembly of church. That's what it was called in Old Testament. It's the first church gathering is the assembly at Mount Sinai. And and you might look wistfully back to that mountain and and think how good would it be to be part of that crowd, rescued from slavery, come through the Red Sea, seeing the miracles. Uh, but, But right there at the mountain in that assembly to experience God, like that, right in front of your eyes, right, as part of that throng. But he says, remember the reality of it before you start longing to be back there. Yes, they had a tangible mountain right in front of them, uh, one that could be touched. Yes, they had this amazing visual experience there. They, they saw the blazing fire coming out of the gloom and, and the tempest and the smoke. And, and yes, they had an audible word, that audible sound from God. They heard the sound of the trumpet and a voice. But their meeting with the living God, remember that was so unutterably terrifying that they literally had to beg God, not to speak. We're so afraid we don't want to hear what he's got to say. Such was the holiness and purity and unapproachable majesty on that day at Mount Sinai that they quaked in fear, literally shaking, terror ruled. And they had no access to God. They couldn't come near him. They couldn't bear the splendor. And, and they were told that they couldn't come near for fear of death. And, and even Moses in verse 21, we're told, he was so terrified that he trembled with fear. He, he's, he was shaking his boots, literally. But we New Testament believers, on the other hand, because of the blood of Jesus, we have been gathered to an altogether different kind of assembly, a different church, a church in which the tangible, visual and audible experience of God at Mount Sinai, well, they're largely invisible. They don't normally happen, right? The audible experience isn't there. And the hope that we have is, is mostly for the future rather than something that's happening right now. It's not a present reality. Where it's centred not on earth as it was for them, but it's centred in the heavenly Jerusalem, uh, the Mount Zion, uh, verse 22 in Mount Zion, where 
gathered around God are myriad angels in festal gathering. That is, they're in their party clothes. <laughs> and uh, it's a gathering of them in their party clothes, uh, giving glory to God. And we have come to that church. We are part of it, a church of those who are called the firstborn of God. Uh, that is, we are the privileged heirs of God. And we are part of that vast, glorious assembly, largely invisible, but universal assembly of the true church of God that's gathered from people all across the world of all sorts of different cultures, down, down through the ages. We are part of it. And, and we have come to that church which has full and free access to God through Jesus' death on the cross, access to joy rather than terror, access to life rather than the fear of death, access to God as our heavenly Father gathered round him in love rather than a fear of the, of the torment of his judgment. We have access to Jesus who is the broker, the mediator of this new covenant who has created this free and joyful access through his blood. And he ends up saying in verse 24, what might seem like a very strange statement there. He says that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And, and you think, what, what does he mean? But why does he even bring up Abel? I thought he was talking about Moses at Mount Sinai and Abel was many years before that. What does he mean by it anyway? Well, Abel died seeking acceptance with God. Jesus died achieving acceptance with God. You remember Abel, Adam and Eve's son, uh, they had two sons at the same time, Cain and Abel, and, and, and Abel died because he sought acceptance with God on the basis of his own work, making access through sacrifice to God from his flocks. And God was pleased with his sacrifice, don't hear me wrong, and, and, but God was pleased with his sacrifice, his brother didn't do so well and his brother grew real jealous and killed him out of spite and envy. And, and so in the end, it was really a pointless death that achieved nothing except the condemnation of the one who was the sinner, the condemnation of his brother. But Jesus' death did the opposite. It, it brought acceptance and not condemnation and acceptance not just for himself but but for the whole mass of people who once were sinners and enemies of God, who are now coming together in joyful assembly, purified, forgiven, in joy around God. Therefore, he says, remember what you have come to. Remember the words spoken to you. Remember what God is saying through the gospel. Listen to him. Listen again to this word of the blood of Jesus spill for you. And as you listen, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Because the word of the blood of Jesus speaks of this extraordinary privilege of being included in God's true heavenly assembly, an assembly with access to God rather than cut off from God, an assembly gathered in joy rather than fear, an assembly we are part of, even though we might feel at the moment small and beleaguered and frail and tired and just fed up. Who knows? The, the, the people this letter was addressed to originally, it might have only been 10 or 20 
people huddled in the back of a house secretly, meeting secretly for fear, the only believers for, for miles around. Nothing like the impressive gathering of millions at Mount Sinai with the spectacular light and sound show, such a light and sound show that Pink Floyd would have been jealous. But impressive as that big gathering was, it was actually hopeless. What happened to them all? They all died in the desert. It brought only terror at the time. They didn't dare approach God. And yes, our gatherings are very, very limited right now much like it would have been back then, but for different reasons. Very limited, the, the slightly awkward Zoom meetings for our Bible studies. <laughs> then obviously not you know, the best at times, the occasional phone call or Skype that we might have with another believer. And, and even in normal times, we might feel small. I mean, we're only really a couple of hundred people at Barney's in the midst of something like 80,000 people that are... Uh, living in our extended parish. But, but remember, our little group is part of God's heavenly assembly. Literally millions of people gathered through the ages, part of the grand and glorious assembly of God, brought together and given access to God by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We have a better word. We have a sure word. We have a word without which there is no hope. And so we must listen attentively to that word, remind ourselves and remind each other of it all the time, not reject his voice. Verse 25, see to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from the one who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression, yet once more, indicates a removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Now he's talking about the day of Jesus' return, the day of judgment. That is a day when God is going to shake the earth to its core, a day when he's going to shake it to pieces, one day everything is going to be removed. None of this created order is going to be going to stand. It's all going to be gone. We might feel at the moment like COVID is shaking the foundations of all that we know. But COVID-19 will one day seem like a little termite hill in a distant jungle in another country somewhere when it's compared to the day of God's judgment. And on that day, only what is centred on Mount Zion in the heavenly Jerusalem, only the true and eternal church of God will stand. That is the unshakable thing. Those who have listened attentively and not rejected that better word that his blood speaks, the word of forgiveness, the word of life, the word of hope, the word of joy, the word that gathers us as children and calls us sons of God, (laughs) word of mercy, as he speaks from the cross of his finished sacrifice. It is finished. And, And that word that gathers us into that eternal joyful assembly, your mind, can never be shaken gathered from 
people all around the world to the throne of God. And so are you listening attentively? Are you speaking the gospel to yourself? Are you reminding your brothers and sisters, even in the limited ways we can at the moment, of him? Are we as a church listening to that word? Because that's the first mark of a church that endures. But there's a second mark. Verse 28 of chapter 12 speaks of a church that worships acceptably. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The, the word serve there is, is, is the word to worship. It's the word from the Old Testament. There's a service that the priests did before the, uh, in the temple, you know, offering sacrifices and singing praise and praying and stuff. It's, it means to worship. Given, given that we are part of this glorious assembly that's gathered around God, then we are to worship him acceptably in the way that he wants. Now, just ponder that for a moment. If you were the one who was writing this letter to these Christians and, and you had just written verse 28 to worship acceptably, how would you continue on and explain that in chapter 13? What, what would you write next to kind of fill that out? How would you spell out what it means to worship acceptably? What, what would you expect that he's going to say next as we read it? Because chapter 13 follows straight on from chapter 12. There's no full stop. It just runs straight on. Now, I shouldn't need to say that. But the trouble is, because the chapters and verse numbers were put in by a bloke in the 16th century, sometimes it looks as though it's all supposed to be separate ideas, new ideas, different ideas. But but actually, chapter 12 runs straight on into chapter 13. Uh, Stephanus, who's the fellow who did it in 1551, he's supposed to have numbered the whole Bible, all the sentences and chapters and divided it all up uh, as he was riding on horseback uh, from Paris to Lyon. Now, he said he did it when he was staying at the rough country inns at night. Uh, I reckon lots of us think that uh, he did it while he was riding on the horseback, hitting bumps and things and just, whoops, that's staying there because I marked it. Uh, and I think he had a particularly big bump at this moment, but maybe it was the country inns and the, you know, whatever went on at night that many made some poor decisions. But you can see that this continues straight on from the middle of chapter uh, 13 in verses 15 and 16 because he's still talking about offering acceptable sacrifices in worship of God. That's what this chapter is about. So having told us in chapter 12 that we are to worship God acceptably, you maybe would expect the writer to go on and talk about angelic choirs or worship bands in heaven or ecstatic moments with you just alone, caught up in your own experience and private moment with God. But instead, what we get is this simple list of statements from verse 1 to 19 that just comes bang, 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 one after the other. It's like a machine gun. This is what acceptable worship looks like. It's not gathering in your coral robes at St Andrew's Cathedral. It's not swaying with your hands in the air and your eyes closed and a little tear forming in the corner in your eye from the joy of the moment. But, but instead, what does it look like? Well, let brotherly love continue. 
Don't neglect to show hospitality. Remember those who are in prison. Keep the marriage bed pure. Keep your life free from the love of money. Remember your leaders. Observe their way of life and imitate them. Obey your leaders. Pray for us. That, that is true worship now, or at least a sketch of it, as that Jesus has achieved access to God for us. This is what it looks like. In other words, now that we have come near to God, as we draw ever closer to him, as we listen attentively, acceptable worship is a life lived day by day for him, taking his lifestyle on. It's living obedient to him. It's wanting to honour him in the everyday things. And this isn't the only part of the Bible. It's Romans chapter 12. Uh, this is your spiritual act of worship that you offer your bodies a living sacrifice, uh, holy and pleasing to God, right? It's, a, it's, it's day to day. It's every day. What does real worship look like? Well, it looks like cooking someone a meal. It looks like peeling potatoes. He says, don't neglect hospitality. Right? Having people over for a meal or cooking for them when they're sick. And, and he's not talking about entertaining, entertaining people that you like that are socially acceptable. That's a different thing. Uh, entertaining your friends normally is about trying to impress them. You have them over and so you clean the house to a condition that has never looked ever before <laughs> uh, in the hope that they'll think that that's how you normally live. And, and you, you, you make your best three-course meal and you dress up in your best smart casual tracksuit pants or whatever you do. But it's all more, much more about an ego trip, isn't it? Uh, or about buttering people up or, uh, or hoping for a return invite. That, that's what entertaining's about, but that's not what's meant here by hospitality. He's talking about genuine care. He's talking about real relationship by having meals together. The Bible is full of commands for Christians to fellowship together by eating, right, as you break bread together. And it's not talking about communion service in church. Well, having communion over is a great thing, but it's hanging out. It's, it's one of the real problems at the moment with the restrictions is we can't break bread together. We can't just hang out and eat a meal together, remembering that we are Christian brothers and sisters and encouraging each other like that. He's talking about eating with people, and they're not even just the people you know and like, even with people you don't know so well, and doing it for their benefit encouragement, having them over or looking after them. It stems out of the brotherly love that he talked about, and that's real worship. Real worship looks like standing side by side with a Christian persecuted for their faith, joining with somebody who stands up as a Christian at work and says they follow Jesus and so they can't do what they've been asked to do by the boss, right? Give that bribe, tell that lie, you know, fiddle the books in the way that will make the company profits look better. Yeah. And it means yeah, the boss might be giving them a hard time but real worship looks like sticking up for them and saying, you know what, I'm a Christian just like them and I stand with them. Or standing beside someone whose family has cut them off because they've come to Christ. 
something that some of our members have had that happen to, right? But it's something that's going to be more and more likely and more and more of a reality as we seek to win people right across our parish from all different cultures and backgrounds and religious upbringings and tribes in our multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious community where in some cases becoming a Christian uh, is seen by the rest as abandoning the family. And, and people in that situation are going to need great care and support and we've got to be the ones who are ready to give it and become their family. Real worship looks like not sleeping with your boyfriend or, and not sleeping with someone else's wife. Keep the marriage bed pure. That's real worship. That's very hard in a world of sexual promiscuity and permissiveness where our media just assaults our senses with this constant barrage of don't hold back, sleep with who you like, don't be repressed, and, and our friends and others around us can join in and say, what are you, is something wrong with you that you're not? Real worship looks like being content with your paycheck, even when your job looking, is looking insecure, which is exactly what was going on in the Hebrew days because they were losing their jobs for their faith. Real worship looks like being content because you know that the Lord is my helper. He will never leave me or forsake me. That's real worship, not being greedy for more. In fact, it looks like the opposite. It looks like generosity. Verse 16, don't forget to do good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. Yes, it's a sacrifice, but we do it because that's a sacrifice that God's pleased with because we want to worship acceptably. Real worship looks like talking about Jesus openly at work, about how good he is. You can see that in verse 15 there. He says, therefore, through him, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Somehow, we have managed, you know, within that Western Christianity to dumb praise down to just singing some Jesus songs in church together. But that, that's got really almost nothing to do with praise as the Bible uses the word. Praise is when I talk up someone to someone else, right? Praise is advertising. It's, it, it, it's showing how good they are to someone else. Have I ever told you how wonderful Ros Doring? She's amazing. What, what a woman. What a Christian woman. And you know what she's been doing this week? She's, she's been delivering care packages to all her neighbours, something like 20 of them this week. Uh, and, and with each of those care packages, she's included uh, one of those essential Jesus, Luke's Gospels from church. Uh, as a gift. What, what a great idea. What a great way to, to be on mission and to share Jesus right now, even in the midst of everything that we can't do. She's, it's something we can do. And she's, wow, Roz is awesome. But you know what? Jesus is better. Jesus is amazing. Right? To, praising him to everyone around, sharing the gospel, just telling everyone how good he is. Right? That's all we're doing. That, that's a sacrifice, we're told, with which God is pleased. The fruit of lips which confess his name. And real worship means listening to God's words as it's taught to you by faithful leaders who have not departed from the cross of Christ. 
and backing those leaders with your prayers, with your money, with uh, uh, obedience, no matter how shameful it might look. That, that is real worship. Not being led astray by the weird and wonderful podcasts of hipster preachers who are just scratching the itching ears of people who, who only want to listen to uh, what they want to hear rather than to the truth. And the reason why we can worship like this and that we don't need an angelic choir or a a thousand watt amps or disco lighting to worship is because of that central bit there in verse 8. And those things are nice uh, and it might be right one day, but but why don't we need them to worship God? Because verse 8, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. And however shameful his death on the cross may feel or look, however strange it is that we follow a crucified king who seemed to have died in dishonour, remember that the disgrace he bore is actually the power of God to save and to restore and to sanctify anyone who would come to him Because on that cross 2,000 years ago, Jesus paid for sin. And therefore, we can enter God's throne room and approach God any time of day or night. And therefore, as we leave church and turn off this podcast in a few minutes' time, we go out to worship God through the rest of the week. What does a church that endures look like? What's a church that won't drift away at the beach like a tennis ball being washed out or like a surfer caught in a rip, but stays the course to the end, that makes it to the finish line of the marathon? It's one that listens attentively to the better word spoken by the blood of Jesus. And it's one that offers itself in acceptable worship to God through indiscriminate hospitality through consistent generosity, through steadfast brotherhood and marital purity and not loving money but consistent loyalty with the the praise of Jesus on the lips of its members every day. And you might think, well, that's that's beyond me right now. I haven't got the strength for that. You know, I'm exhausted as it is and I'm tired and I'm fed up and I, I don't know what to do. Well, here's the final brilliant bit of the letter, a word of assurance right at the end of it all to say that you don't have to do all this in your own strength because we're not in this alone. God is with us. Have a look, verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good to do his will working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In contrast to the old covenant, which we've heard over and over again through the letter, is passing away, that is about to be, well, has been abolished, does not stand, it's become obsolete. The blood of the eternal covenant enables us to be shepherded by the great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus And therefore, at every point, the cross stands right at the heart of everything in this letter and everything in our life. 
It is the cross of Jesus that speaks the better word than the blood of Abel. It's the cross of Jesus that enables us to worship God. It's the cross through which Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, shepherds us and equips us and enables us to run the race. How appropriate then that we are going to be sharing the Lord's Supper today and remember together the death of our King and Saviour, which gives us the strength and enables us to keep running. Why don't we pray together? Our Father, we do thank and praise you for the better word of the blood of Jesus that brings acceptance with you. And we pray that as we gather this day in different homes, you know, in different places, on different couches, and with wherever and wherever we are, with whoever we are, that this week we may serve you as part of this great and glorious assembly that, that we gather with all who've gone before us in all the centuries and millennia, and we look forward to that gathering with all the company of heaven when we will join them. And so we pray now that you will help us to live in light of that, to worship you. Thank you now as we come to you in prayer. Thank you for the cross and that we are meeting with your people even in this virtual way and that we will stand forever because of your goodness, that you are with us. And we thank you for the blood that enables us to be forgiven of our many sins. And, and there are many and some still continue to haunt us. Please forgive us for that and help us to, to get rid of those things. Help us to live in worship for you every day, every moment. Please, Lord, shepherd us. Please give us the strength when we don't have it ourselves. Energise and equip us for running the race right to the end. Keep our eyes on Jesus. Amen.